Welcome back to the Arrogance of Infinity podcast. Here's part two, Expeditions. For a seven-year-old kid who'd spent 90% of his life in a forest or field, the sidewalks beneath the cavernous buildings of big city Minneapolis were a wonder, especially when being dragged by a 70-year-old World War I vet who kept pace with pedestrian traffic through an excellent memory and the rapid clickety-clack of a white cane. Gramps gave rotating life lessons to his eight grandsons by taking us to work with him at the Minnesota State Highway Department, known in the age of hurry-up acronyms as MnDOT. His job, reserved for a disabled vet, was daily management of the donut vending machines on each of the highway building's eight floors. I was stealing glances at my all-time favorite building, the Art Deco Fauchet Tower, a Washington Monument look-alike that was the tallest structure between Chicago and the West Coast from 1929 to 72. That's when Investors Diversified Services came along and stole the title with their evil glass and steel IDS tower. My first classroom experience occurred atop the Fauchet two years earlier in the studios of KMSP-TV alongside Miss Betty on the Do Be a Do Be set of the children's television show Romper Room. Despite getting to drive the milk truck, I was unable to parlay the performance into child stardom. Gramps busted my reflections of youth with each tug of the hand. Gotta keep up, he'd say. Get the drift. If you don't, I'll snow you in. I needed to keep pace so we could catch the connecting bus that would take us across the mighty Mississippi, through the sprawling campus of the University of Minnesota, past St. Mary's, the hospital of my birth, and onto the mysterious land of government, fairgrounds, ice castles, and Catholics, St. Paul, Minnesota. Before I could make the epic journey with Gramps, I'd sleep in his big leather recliner and rise at 4.30 a.m. at 3444 Colfax Avenue in South Minneapolis. Today, the Pullman-style apartment, with a garage stall and location in trendy uptown, is priced like a New York City flat and a dream address for millennials. Graham would have the most important meal waiting, but with a room full of donuts being cooked as we waked, my interest was thin. Before any taste of the rare delights came the expedition. It was a half block up Colfax to 34th, then three blocks over to Lindale, where we'd fill the clinking coin counter of a green and white bus that would take us downtown to Hennepin Avenue. Hennepin Avenue was aptly named for a Franciscan priest, as in, who else could forgive its existence? It was one of two skid rows in Minneapolis that were populated by mostly white men whose post-war dreams and ambitions had been rediscovered in day jobs, panhandling, thievery, and booze. We'd walk a few more blocks past Nicollet and Marquette to Second Avenue, where we'd complete the transfer to the eastbound bus. I'd gape at more buildings along the way, another Art Deco tower, the Rand, 
the gothic spires of Northwestern Bell Telephone, Farmers and Mechanics Bank, whose entrance was guarded by Depression-era sculptures of lean and powerful-looking men. Northern States Power had mascot Reddy Kilowatt, and Northwestern National Bank had a color-coded ball of glass on top that told the weather. By the age of nine, I knew Minneapolis architecture like most kids knew baseball cards. After the bus transfer, we'd pass one of the city's most significant buildings, one that housed the apex of media power and influence in the upper Midwest, the Minneapolis Star and Tribune Company, a business that relied on more than 10,000 independent distributors to circulate almost a million newspapers six days a week and more than a million on Sundays. The distributors were 12 to 16 year old kids who were also in charge of revenue collection and local inventory control. St. Paul, however, had a building far more impressive than any in Minneapolis. The Cathedral of St. Paul is the fourth largest church in the United States and the largest outside of New York City and Washington, D.C. It sits on the city's highest hill and the massive 120-foot-wide copper dome rises another 306 feet with such ominous presence as to never be taken for granted. The first time I saw it, I knew Minneapolis had more big business towers, but God's headquarters was across the river. We couldn't see the cathedral for most of the seven-mile trip of starts and stops along University Avenue the main drag between the cities. The route was a gorge of two and three-story structures that had aged through three major wars and the Great Depression. The buildings that had been torn down were paved with asphalt and loaded with new used automobiles for sale at the best prices but probably not the best values in town. The highway building was perched alongside its brand new Interstate 94 that was near completion but traffic free in the summer of 1968. As a river of concrete cured in anticipation of joining America's most recent innovation in distribution, the Eisenhower National System of Interstate and Defense Highways. The folks in the building, Gramps customers, engineered the ramming of I-94 through the mostly African-American Rondo neighborhood, just as their counterparts had done in New York, Philadelphia, Indianapolis, Nashville, Tulsa, et al., to the burgeoning centers of black culture throughout the nation. Half of Gramps' customers looked up at the cathedral and half across the expansive lawns to the gleaming white marble of our state's capital, a building that in 1968 represented, to me, the hope of humanity, but 50 years later would come to epitomize waste and corruption. The green and white bus that looked like it belonged in every American city took a turn off university and stopped a half block from our destination. Once inside the highway building's commissary, I'd marvel at Gramps' sense of feel for the right keys that opened access to his daily process. He had a broom closet of an office that had a couple of bus carts 
general supplies, and a cast iron safe with a big dial that was just as cool as they looked on TV. Work would begin with packaging freshly baked donuts, eclairs, and Bismarcks. Bismarcks are jelly donuts, originated in Germany, where they were called Berliners, before being renamed after Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. In the U.S., the name only stuck in heavily concentrated German populations and led to the localized joke that John F. Kennedy's Ich bin ein Berliner speech translates to I am a jelly donut. My job was to slide pastries into cellophane bags, fold them over, then swipe the package over a stainless steel hot plate to create a quick melt seal. Back in the 60s, adults believed the pain of error was the fastest way to teach. We'd visit vending machines on each of eight floors using modern, operator-free elevators with push buttons the whole time to swap out day-old for fresh donuts and pour square metal buckets of coins into canvas cash bags. It wasn't rare in those days to see buffalo nickels, last minted in 1938, and mercury dimes from 1916 to 45 in circulation. Once in a while, we'd even come across Indian head pennies that were minted from 1859 to 1909. The wheat bag pennies were only out of circulation for a decade, so Gramps put them aside in a World War II surplus shell box to save for future generations. The blind man's sense of feel would again come into play back at his office, where he'd sift through coins and let them fall through his fingers as Washington, Jefferson, Abe, and FDR fell away. He'd buy out, at face value, the more precious out-of-circulation stock for his side venture as a coin broker. Then we'd swing back to the third and seventh floors to visit Gramps' coin collector buddies, who would purchase the currency at wholesale, then turn it again at pawn and coin shops. The gratuitous insider trading was forgiven in lieu of their fates as cattle in 40 by 100 foot rooms with dozens of perfectly aligned rows of metal desks separated by the exact amount of space it takes to get a mail or a donut cart down the aisle. The day would come full circle with a return trip to Minneapolis on the green and white where we would be dropped at the doorstep of Ballantine VFW post number 246 on Lindale and Lake Street. Gramps would set me up at the bar with a soda and instructions to keep an eye out for Graham while he conducted business, a card game, in the club room. Graham would show within an hour in a shiny Buick Skylark from her job as a bookkeeper at the world's largest retailer, Sears and Roebuck Company, before driving as weary workers back home. My pop's folks exuded an air of wealth. Everything was always so tidy and neat at 3444 Colfax, from the kitchen to their clothes to the air-conditioned Skylark. Unlike mom's home on the farm, where bugs, dust, and animals were first cousins, Rex and Beulah's apartment was airtight with order and cleanliness. 
It was many years before I came to recognize the origins of their elegant efficiency. There was no financial wealth for my grandparents. Merely self-preserving, self-discipline, born out of a love of freedom. They grew up in a world dominated by monarchs, sultans, emperors, and kaisers. A hundred years ago, the only nations free from totalitarians were the United States, France, and, if you want to count a micronation with captains' regions as heads of state, San Marino. The centennials of the early 1900s were nostril deep in real life, occupy the world battles to determine whether people would live in individual liberty or to be lorded over by tyrannical governments. The one percenters of the early 20th century owned more than most of the world's wealth. They owned most of the world's people. And when they weren't happy with another totalitarian, or if they were feeling a need for a bit more power, they'd send millions of youthful male subjects to go fight for it. During one of those fights, on September 13, 1918, at the Battle of St. Mihiel, France, Corporal Rex Levering Pickett of the American Expeditionary Force was riddled with shrapnel and lost his sight to Kaiser Wilhelm's artillery and mustard gas. It led to two lifetimes of stoic organization that was my grandparents' response to the human inequity that has existed since the dawn of time. It led to a job at the highway building for a 70-year-old blind man who parlayed the opportunity into life lessons for his grandchildren. <laughs>